theyeshiva.net. joining us tonight from around the world. This evening's class is dedicated by David and Ida Schattenstein in the loving memory of a young soul, Alta Shula, Sword Love, the daughter of Rabbi Yossi and Hindel Sword Love, who was struck down by a bus in Jerusalem a few weeks ago, to Hay. This evening's class is also dedicated by the Schattensteins in the loving memory of Rabbi Gavriel Noyach Gabi and his wife Rifki Holtzberg massacred in the terror attacks in Mumbai their yard site coming up next week their first yard site together with all of the Kedoshim of Mumbai, India Please open up your curriculums. Right below the video, there is a PDF document, a curriculum to source number one. We're going to study the opening lines of the Talmudic tractate, Kiddushin, Marriage. Zog the Mishnah, in the beginning of Mesech the Kiddushin, says the Mishnah, Ha'isha niknis b'shalish drachim v'koynes at v'koynes atzma b'shtei drachim. A woman is acquired through three methods, and she acquires herself through two methods. Meaning, the Mishnah is saying, how does one legally, from a Torah point of view, create a marriage? So the way one enters into a covenant, a relationship with a wife in marriage, it happens through one of three methods. What are the three methods, methods of the Mishnah? Niknis, Bekesef, Bishtar, Ubebiya. Either marriage happens through money, or through a document, a star, or through Bia, through intimate relations. Meaning, if a man gives money, or something that's worth money, to a woman, in order to enter into the covenant of marriage, that is what creates the marriage called Kiddushin. Or if he gives her a document, a star, on which he writes, it says, Hareyatmikudashasli, you're consecrated to me, or Bia, or through the physical relations. These are the three methods through which marriage occurs through which the legal bond of marriage happens, after which, in order to sever the bond, 
a get, a divorce is necessary because there is a bond between the man and the woman, the husband and the wife. Comes the Gemara further in source number one. Asks the Gemara, Kesef Minalan. What is the source that money can create a marriage? What is the source in the Torah and the Bible that this is how marriage is created? So the Gemara answers, Gamar Kicha Kicha Mizde Efren. This is derived from the comparison between the word Kicha and Kicha from the field of Efren. Ksiv Hacha. Concerning marriage, the Torah writes in Deuteronomy, in the portion of Kiseitzei, Ki yikach ish isha, when a man shall take a wife, the word yikach is used. Uksiv hasam, and the words that are used there, by the story of Abraham Avram purchasing a burial plot for his wife Sarah after her death from the man Ephraim, the term used over there in Parshas Chayisar, in the beginning of the portion of Chayisar, is Nasati Kesef Asada. Abraham Avram tells Ephraim, I have given you the money for the field, Kachmi Meni, take it from me. So the word Kicha is used in both cases, in the case of marriage and in the case of the burial of Sarah, the purchase of the plot of Ephraim. Thus we derive from here that marriage can occur through money, through kesef. Let me explain what this means. The Torah, as any student of the Torah knows, is often very cryptic and concise. And often it's hard to understand clearly the practical law and legal formula for many situations. Therefore, when Moshe Rabbeinu Moses gave the Torah to the Jewish people, he also gave them an additional to the text. Methodology. Yud Gimel Midas. Thirteen methods of interpretation through which they can study and dissect the divine text of the Torah and deduce various laws in different areas. One of these 13 methods is known as Gzeir Shava. It's a fascinating method. If there are two separate laws in the Torah, disconnected from each other, but in both of them, or two separate stories, two different episodes, two different discussions in the Torah, but in each of them, a similar or identical word is used. And in one of them, we're unsure about a particular law. So, because the same word is used in both instances, we apply the laws in one of them towards the other as well. This is done in this case as well. We have here two cases, two instances in which the Torah uses the word kach, kicha, taking. In one the meaning is extremely clear. In the other one, it's ambiguous. Where is it ambiguous? In Parshish Kisetzer, means when a man marries a wife. Fine, but how do you marry a wife? What creates a marriage? What do you have to do? What is the methodology, the instrument to create a marital bond? The Torah is ambiguous. There says, the man takes a wife. But how do you take a wife? How do you marry a wife? Ah, Gzeir 
The word kicha, taking, is used in Parshas Chayesar. One is in Deuteronomy, one is in Genesis. When Avram is purchasing, negotiating the purchase of a burial plot for his wife Sarah, there the word kach is used. He tells Ephraim, the Chittite, from whom Abraham purchased the cave of the Machpelah, the Baris of Machpelah, he says, Nasati kesef asate kach mimeni. I have given you the money for the field, take it from me. There the meaning is very clear. Avram is acquiring a field. How is the acquisition achieved? By giving Ephraim money. So by the transaction of money, Avram gives Ephraim money, he acquires the field. So there Kich is very clear. So the Gemara says in the beginning of Kedushin, now we understand what Kiyikach Ish Isha means. Just like by the case of Avram and Ephraim, the word Kich is used, Kach And what are we, what is it talking about? What is the theme there? The theme is that he's acquiring a field. How? Via money, via Ephraim taking the money. So we apply the same law. Oh, so here in marriage, How does the husband acquire, so to speak, his wife? How is the acquisition of marriage? created just like by Avram Avinu. How did he acquire the field through money? Here to how does he take her? How is the acquisition created? How does he enter into the covenant of marriage with his wife? Through money. And that's the first of the three methods employed in the Mishnah. And in fact, that is the tradition that has been embraced by Jews for generations. When you enter into the covenant of marriage, how do they do it? Not with a document, not with a star. The ksuva has nothing to do with this, that's something else. That's marital obligations that the husband obligates himself towards, but it doesn't have to do with creating the marriage, nor with bia, nor with relations, where witnesses can say that the husband and wife went into a private room with enough time to have intimate relations, that is not done as, a, as the legal formula for marriage. What do we practice? Kesef. When the husband stands under the chuppah and he places the ring on his bride's finger, because either it's money or it's something that's worth money, shove a kesef. As the Talmud explains in Tractate Kiddushin and Jewish law explains, he places that ring on her finger and says, Hareyat mekodeshes liba taba you're married to me through this ring, according to the law of Moses and Israel. It's this transaction of money that he gives over this ring to his wife to become hers, through which they enter into the bond of marriage, and from now they're a married couple. And if they want to sever the relationship, it can't just happen by parting ways, but they actually need a get, a safer crisis, as the apostle continues, through which they become separated, divorced, severed. This is the beginning of Masech de Kedush. Now, here, the obvious question comes to mind. Isn't it strange that the laws of marriage are derived from the story in which Avraham acquires a field? It's two, so dis- two disconnected themes. Here we're dealing with a person entering into a marriage, a husband and a wife entering into a marital relationship. Here Avram is acquiring a piece of real estate. What is the meaning, what is the symbolism behind the fact that from the laws of acquiring a field, you learn how to acquire a wife? 
It seems strange. It seems absurd. What is even more disturbing? Why is Avram acquiring this field? He's buying a plot in which to bury and inter his wife who passed away. In other words, he's purchasing a plot in order to bury his wife who passed away through which that marriage was terminated because she passed away. So where do we learn and derive the laws of marriage from? From the story in which a marriage sadly ended because the wife passed away and he's buying a plot in order to bury her there. I'm not asking a legalistic question. Legalistically it works. I'm asking a thematic question. What is the meaning? What is the message? The Torah could have certainly, if it wished, created a situation where we would derive the laws of marriage from another law, from another story, from another instance. But no, it's from Zdeyefren, from a story about the burial of a spouse, about the death of a spouse, from which we derive the laws of marriage. And as I said, every single marriage, Jewish marriage today, is done through Kesef. So when the husband, when the chas and the groom places the ring on his wife's finger, says, Hare at mekudeshesli on his bride's finger, what is the source of that act? What is the source, the legal biblical source which justifies that act and warrants it as an act of marriage? It's the moment when Sarah passes away and Abraham is negotiating the purchase of a burial plot in the city of Hebron, in the city of Hebron, the Ma'aras HaMachpelah for Sarah. Isn't that strange? The question is intensified, is increased. When we study and read the continuation of the portion of Chayasara, what is the following story? Right after the purchase of the burial plot in Hebron and the burial of Sarah into that plot. What is the next story immediately? It's the story of the marriage, the Shidduch, created between Yitzchak and Rivka, Isaac and Rebekah. A long, dramatic, stretched out narrative. How Abraham sends his servant to go find a bride for his son Yitzchak. The journey, the negotiations the omen, the signs that the servant makes to figure out who is the right girl. He brings Rivka back and ultimately Yitzchak ends up marrying her. It's interesting, this portion is called Parshas HaShiduchim. It's the portion of Shiduchim, of relationships, of marriage. And in many Sparta communities there is a custom, an ancient custom, that the Shabbos, before a marriage, this portion, the Ufra finish, it's called the Chassan, is called to the Torah, this portion is read, Parshas HaShiduchim. Now, in the Torah, the proximity of portions, the juxtapositions between parshas, what's called smichas, one parsha, one portion coming after another one, is extremely significant. It's not just you have one story, you put another story, you put them near each other. This, the proximity, the juxtaposition has tremendous significance and symbolism to it. The fact that it's in the same portion, never mind if it's mamish, literally juxtaposed one after the other. It's coming to teach us something to convey a certain message, to challenge a convention, to inspire an ideal. This juxtaposition, though, seems tasteless, if not awful. Sarah just passed away. She's buried after a long and intense negotiation. And what's the next scene? Marriage. Yitzchak gets married. 
right after this. No break. Sarah was just buried. Avram came to cry, to eulogize her. The next scene is a shidduch for Yitzchak. It's similar to kicha kichem as day Ephraim, if you think about it. What's the immediate story following the death and burial of Sarah? The marriage of Yitzchak. So the concept, and this is a very interesting idea, when the Gemara says in Kiddushin that we derive the laws of marriage from the, from the story of the burial of Sarah, Kicha Kichem is Diaphragm, it's emphasized in the very portion that following the burial of Sarah immediately comes the story of a new marriage, of the marriage of her son and her daughter-in-law Isaac and Rebecca. Now I know what the cynics are thinking. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's a cynical line somebody once said, before I was married, I was incomplete. Now I got married and I'm finished. Or Woody Allen said marriage is the death of hope. But these cynical observations are certainly inconsistent with the Jewish perspective on marriage and would not justify the kicha kicha mizdei efra that we have been discussing. It's known and it's one of the most fascinating components of Judaism and of the study of Torah texts that every story, law, episode, narrative, commandment, mitzvah in Torah can be understood at least on four different levels. There are four layers, so to speak, to every verse, narrative, and commandment in the Torah. They're known as Pshat, Remez, Drush, Soid. The acronym is Pardes, a garden, an orchard in Hebrew. Pshat is the most basic layer of Torah interpretation. It's the literal, concrete interpretation of a verse, a story, or a law. Then there is Remez. Remez is the homiletical interpretation or the symbolic interpretation. Realizing that this law or mitzvah or story is also symbolic of different ideas and concepts. The next layer is known as Drush. Drush is the interconnected level of interpretation through which we, we in Drush we recognize the interconnectedness and the integration between the entire Torah as a singular and harmonious organism and therefore many different concepts become connected and new ideas derived from them. And then there is the fourth level known as Said, the mystical level, or the esoteric dimension of Torah wisdom. There's also a fifth level that we will discuss later in tonight's class. Let us suggest this evening four answers to the question. On these four levels, Pshat, Remez, Drush, Said. Now although... We are studying a piece of Gemara, a piece of Talmud, which is usually defined as Drash, because the system of the Talmud deals very much with the interconnectedness of the whole Torah. The entire Torah is open, that, open the open book, and different verses and laws and stories become interconnected with each other. For example, Gzairish Shava. Nonetheless, in each one of the four layers itself, you have four layers. This pshat shebe pshat and remes shebe pshat and drush shebe pshat, and in drash too you have pshat shebe drash and remes shebe drash and drash shebe drash and soit shebe drash. 
each one of the four is also subdivided into four. So we're going to explore what I think can possibly be defined perhaps as these four levels in this statement. Kicha, kicha, Mizdayefra. Level number one, Pshat, the literal level. The Ramban Nachman and Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman, the 13th century great biblical rabbi, sage, scholar in Spain, Barcelona, who then made Aliyah to the Holy Land to Eretz Yisrael, Ramban, explains here in this story the seemingly strange negotiations that were going on between Avraham and the Chittite tribe who lived and populated Hebron. To the extent Avram says, let me speak to your chief, Ephron. And he negotiates the plot with him. And what the Ramban shows from the textual reading is that there was a debate going on. The Chittite tribe, the Chittim, had a custom that they would not sell plots of land to a stranger not from their tribe, not permanently. So when Avram asks for them, asks of them to give him a burial plot for Sarah, they agree. They say it's no problem. You can inter Sarah in the burial plot you want, but it's not going to become yours. Avram Avinu insists on Achuzas Kaver is the term used. He wants a plot that will belong to him and his family, so that Sarah can be buried there. When his time comes, he can be interred there. Ultimately, his children and grandchildren, Yitzchak, Rivka, Yaakov, Leah, he wants it as a family plot that belongs to the Hebrew tribe, to the Jewish family. This is what's going on in the intense negotiation. He doesn't just want a temporary plot to put the body there. He wants it as an eternal resting place for the founding fathers and mothers of the Jewish family. This then, on a literal level, can explain the symbolic meaning in the fact that the laws of marriage are derived from the acquisition of this field from Ephraim. Because Ephraim ultimately concedes, and he gives Avram this as an eternal plot for the Jewish people. And it's of course the first acquisition made in the Holy Land in Eretisol, which is to become the eternal homeland of the Jewish people. Not a temporary homeland. It's not like places Jews live in exile around the world, which are temporary places of residence. Eretz Yisrael is the eternal homeland of the Jewish people. Even when they're in exile, they look towards the Holy Land as their eternal and timeless homeland, as the Bible articulates time and time and time again. This then may be the literal meaning in learning, deriving the laws of marriage from this law, because the Torah is trying to convey a very powerful message. When you get married, the proposition has to be the Hanukkah, the initial thought and foundation has to be this is an eternal relationship. Divorce is not an option. When a married couple, when a husband and a wife enter into the covenant of marriage, they have to enter into it with the conviction that no debate in the world, and no argument in the world, and no fight between them will manage to destroy their relationship, to destroy their marriage. We live today in a time when very often married couples already in the beginning are contemplating the possibility for divorce. The problem with that is when you entertain the possibility for divorce, it's very likely the divorce indeed will happen. Because when you leave the door open, you will, when you leave that side door open, you'll use it. 
Because husbands and wives are very different people. Men and women are different. And marriage can be very stressful. And there are challenges and there are difficulties. And if divorce is an option, it's going to be used. When the couple gets married, the Torah is saying divorce is not an option. We're in it together for life. Of course everybody knows that divorce is an option and sometimes unfortunately and sadly divorce has to be employed. The Torah itself discusses the possibility for divorce. But initially when you're entering into marriage in your consciousness it's not an option. You're sticking it out with this person through thick and thin. You're going to hold hands together. You're not going to escape from each other in the roller coaster of life. And that helps the marriage actually blossom because there's a certain trust and a certain confidence. That this is eternal, it's timeless, it's not going to change. But when you know the possibility will change, you can't trust the other person fully. You can't allow all of your emotions to come out because you may be hurt. This you may be your ex one day. Let me give a simple example. What is so unique about the relationship between parents and children? Let's say you're having a child who's very difficult. Does a mother tell the father, you know what? We're going to give this child another year till he's five years old. If he shapes up... We're going to keep him. If not, we're going to give him up for adoption. That's not the functional, healthy relationship between parents and children. The unique element of the relationship between parents and children is that when you have a child, you know, this is my kin, this is my child forever. It may be difficult, it may be challenging, this is my child. And this is what allows the bond between a father and a child, between a mother and a child to be so intense timeless and extraordinarily profound because you know this is it similarly although not identically similarly is in a marriage Avram wants a permanent plot in the permanent homeland of the Jewish people interpretation number two on the level of drush the interconnected level of interpretation. What is unique about this deal is, usually I buy something from you, I get the plot of land, you get the money, hopefully we both feel good about it, I feel I did a good deal, you, felt, you feel you did a good deal, and uh, it's fine, you move on. What was unique about this particular transaction was, that each one of the two parties of Ram and Ephraim felt that he just completed an extraordinarily amazing deal. You see, that night Ephraim came home to his wife. Says, Mrs. Ephraim, you wouldn't believe this Jew. You know, they always say Jews were smart, Jews were good at business, they were good at real estate, but I don't know what came over this of Rome. He wanted some lousy field, lousy plot of land, a cave. A duck cave with two floors. Marissa Machbel in Hevron. Lousy piece of real estate. Nothing there. And he was ready to pay Arba Meiz Shekel Kesef. 400 pure shekels of silver from the purest and best silver. Which the Gemara in Baba Metziah Daf Pezayin says. That it was equivalent to the sum of one million ordinary shkalim. One million shekels, Ephraim says, I got for what? For a garnished piece of junk. I don't know what came over this man, but this was a very, very good day for me.
Avraham also completed the deal. And what did he think to himself? For a million shekel, for 400 shekel kesef, I acquired the piece of land where Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, the people created by Hashem himself, were buried. He thought he got a bargain. Ephraim thought he really got a bargain. Avraham said he got a bargain. Such a piece of land is priceless where Adam and Chava are. And this is the piece of land I got for Sarah for her resting place. Comes the Gemara and says, Kicha, Kicha, Mizdei Ephra. If you want a good marriage, this is the attitude that the groom and the bride, the husband and the wife, have to cultivate in their marriage. Each one has to believe and think to themselves, I got an amazing deal. I can't believe I got this deal. The husband ought to think to himself, Wow, look what I got. It is completely disproportionate to what she got. She got me. <laughs> and what did I get? I got her. Completely disproportionate what I, to what I gave. I gave myself. She has me. I am who I am. I have these flaws. I have these deficiencies. But look what I got. I got this bride. And the woman and the bride ought to cultivate the same feeling. He got me, but look what I got. Such a special, unique person. But if the husband walks around thinking, you know, like somebody once told me, I did my wife a favor by marrying her. I did her a favor. It's not going to work. This won't be a good relationship. And if the wife walks around thinking, you know, I did him a favor for deciding to marry him and sticking it out with him. I'm doing him the biggest favor in the world. Such a marriage is very difficult for it to blossom. Kicha, kicha, Ephraim, the groom and the bride, must cultivate this attitude. I got an unbelievable deal. Number three. Interpretation number three. Remes. Symbolism. The homiletical layer. The great question has been asked and asked again over the millennia. What is the secret of Jewish resilience? How is it that after so much persecution, savage suffering, and torment with the Jewish people experienced over thousands of years, they never lost their zest for life, their passion for love, their commitment to rebuilding Jewish life, Whence such strength, such vitality, such animation in the presence of so much adversity? Where did they get it from? We know other cultures, other nations, other civilizations who have suffered far less agony than the Jewish people. And yet they developed a bitterness, a resentment, a despair. They either gave up, they assimilated, or they always felt like the victims. And we have it till today. Those who forever feel like victims, the whole world owes me something and I could never really be happy and take my destiny into my own hands. Yet the Jewish people always managed to rebound sometimes from the worst calamity and the greatest crisis. How? Or in the words of the Gemara, Kesef minolon. Kesef also means love, craving. Where did they get the love of life? 
after seeing so much death? And the answer is, Kicha, Kicha, Mizdei Efren. Zdei is a field. Efren is the name of Efren, the Chitaitu sold it for the also comes from the word Afar, which is earth. The Jewish people always develop this attitude and perspective. Kicha, Kicha, Mizdei Efren. From the fields and from the earths of Efren, they created Kiyikach Ish Isha, a marriage, a new family life. What they saw in Zdei Efren, in the killing fields of Efren, in the earth, when they watched the field where they buried their loved ones, and when they saw the earth which had soaked in it the blood of so many countless Jews, what did they see in Zdei Efren? They saw in it a call for renewal, for rejuvenation. This attitude is emphasized in a powerful moment in the Gemara. Open up source number two, Zag the Gemara, Sanhedrin, Sadegimel, and Aleph. The Gemara discusses their Hananya, Mishal, and Azariah with three advisors of the Babylonian emperor Nebuchadnezzar. And he tried to force them to worship the pagan idolatry, including himself and Hananya, Mishal, and Azariah, refused. So Nebuchadnezzar, the monarch of Bavel, of Babylonia, today's Iraq, cast them into a burning furnace. Miraculously, they were not consumed. They came out intact, alive. The fascinating thing is we never hear from them again. We never hear about Hanani, Mishal, and Azariah again. So the rabbis wondered what happened to Hanani, Mishal, and Azariah once they left that fiery burning furnace. Sanhedrin, Sadegimel, and Aleph. Rabbanon, Lehei, Where did the teach? Where did the rabbis go to? Where did they disappear? And the Gemara brings three opinions. And the third opinion is the opinion of Rabbi Yechen and Rabbi Yechen and Amar. Three things. They made Aliyah, they went up to the Holy Land. They married and they gave birth to sons and daughters. Doesn't this line of Rabbi Yechen capture one of the greatest themes of Jewish history? What did the survivors in our generation do when they came out of the Kifshanesh? When they came out of the burning furnaces of Auschwitz and Treblinka and Dachau and Bergen-Belsen and Mauthausen? What did the survivors who came out of the extermination death camps of the Nazis in Machshamon, what did they do with their lives? And no, they were not as fortunate as Hanani, Mishal and Azariah who left the Kivshanaish untouched, unaffected. These survivors of our generation saw their loved ones, six million of their loved ones, including one and a half million children, going up in the crematoriums those years. And they came out of a Kivshanaish where they left millions of Jews. But what did they do? They did three things. Alul Eretz Yisrael, they rebuilt Eretz Yisrael the homeland of the Jewish people. And they rebuilt the Eretz Yisrael in every Jewish community. The Meiri says at the end of Ksuvah that every place in the world with his Torah and Yerushalayim, with his Torah and for heaven, and has the status of Eretz Yisrael. Jews rebuilt Eretz Yisrael physically, and Eretz Yisrael spiritually, Jewish life. What else did they do? They married. They got married. And what else? They created children. They created families. 
Did many of them not say to themselves, Am I bringing children into such a world? Am I not scared that my children will have to endure what I endured? Can I believe in a future when the whole world watched such a genocide, the greatest black hole in human and in Jewish history? Systematic destruction of one and a half million children in the most brilliant, organized and structured way like the Germans knew how to do it. Where sometimes in 1944, 12,000 Jews were gassed a day and nobody uttered a pips. Can I bring children back into such a world? And yet most of them did what Hananiah, Mashal, and Azariah did. They went up to Israel, they married, and they rebuilt their lives, trying to be as normal as possible and giving their children all the hope, the nurture, the resources, and as much as possible the love to be able to rebuild Jewish life. And we are all here today because of that. How did they do it? Kicha, kicha, Mizdei Efren. From the burial plots, from Mizdei Efren, from the burial places of the Jewish people, they created Kiyika Chishisha, a new life, a new generation, a new family, a new marriage. They brought their, they married themselves and they brought their children to the chuppah. They built Jewish communities, institutions, schools, synagogues, mikvahs. And ensure that Jewish life will continue not only to survive and thrive. Because Jews always knew one thing. What must be the result of every Zdei Ephraim? When you look at Zdei Ephraim, the fields of Ephraim. The burial place that contains the life of Sarah, the body of Sarah. Our first mother. When you look at that field, what is the result? What must be the consequences? The consequence which must come is When you look at Zdei Efren, it must create a call, an inspiration, a motivation. It must become a catalyst and a springboard for new life, for pulsating, vibrant Jewish life. From Zdei Efren is Kiyikachishisha. The fourth level of interpretation, Soid, the mystical, the esoteric dimension. There are two types of relationships, there are two types of marriages. One you might call the conscious one and the unconscious one. One relationship is based on conscious emotions. I appreciate you, I love you, I cherish you, I value you, I enjoy you, and therefore I want to connect to you and I enter into a relationship with you. What is the foundation of our bond? What is the source of our relationship? It's my conscious feelings towards you. Often that is how we would describe marriage. Two strangers meet at some point in their lives. They develop a liking towards each other. They develop an affection towards each other. They appreciate each other's personalities, perspectives, emotions, heart, soul, mind, physical and spiritual compositions. And they say, you know what, let us connect let us enter into a marriage but that relationship obviously is contingent on the conscious emotions and if a day comes where I don't feel that love and my feeling my positive feelings towards you change naturally the relationship dies 
as well. Because the re- essence of the relationship, the source of the relationship, the relationship is a child of my emotions. And when those emotions are gone, when the romance is dead, and the love is gone, the relationship is gone. And therefore many couples would say, you know, why fake it? On paper we may be married, for the IRS we may be married, but internally we're not married, so let's therefore finalize and legalize our divorce. But there's another type of relationship. There's a relationship which works in a very different way. It's a relationship which is intrinsic. It's innate. It exists not only on my conscious level I feel towards you. No, it exists on an unconscious or a superconscious or a subconscious level, whatever term you want to use. The relationship is essential to my very identity. In the depths of my being, I am connected to you. And it's the other way around. Because I am connected to you, therefore I develop strong emotions towards you. It's not that my feelings create the relationship. It's the relationship creates the feelings. A simple example would be parents and children. You have strong feelings towards your mother... Because you are intrinsically connected to your mother. She is your mother. She is a part of you. You are a part of her. As a result of that, you have strong emotions. Hopefully the emotions are very positive emotions. But that's not really the discussion at the moment. The strong emotions come from the fact that there is an intrinsic relationship that you can never go away from. You can love your mother, you can unfortunately hate your mother, I hope not. But you can't ignore your mother. And therefore, in this type of relationship, even when there is no feeling, the relationship is not gone because the relationship is not created from the feeling. The feeling is created from the relationship. Now Judaism especially the mystical dimension of Judaism, Kabbalah discusses this relationship about marriage as well. Although marriage is not between parents and children, but as the Zohar puts it, when a husband and a wife get married, it's plaguf, it's two halves of one soul getting married. So therefore, the relationship is not based on conscious emotions. The relationship is an intrinsic one, it's an innate one, it's an essential one. The relationship is a soulful one, whether they're conscious of it or not. The chuppah is not just a union, it's a reunion. A relationship that exists beneath the conscious level, it's a subterranean relationship. It's not only one that's exposed on the surface, it's one that exists in the cave in the caves of the human psyche, in the underground, subterranean chambers of the soul, there is a relationship that you may be unconscious of, but it's present and it's intense. This, of course, means that even when the emotions may be not fully present, they don't see their relationship as gone, as naught, as dead, because they are aware that there is still an essential, intrinsic relationship. This also means something else. It means that when one of them dies, the relationship is not over. Because since the relationship didn't begin with birth, it also doesn't end with death. The relationship is not just two bodies decided to connect. The relationship is a soulful relationship, and therefore was there before birth, 
and therefore it's going to be there after death. Which does not mean that from a Jewish perspective, a widow or a widower ought not to remarry. On the contrary, since you are connected with your husband or your wife who passed away even after death, so therefore they really want you to be happy. And if for your happiness or for your family or for your future, a second marriage will be helpful and will be productive and will be meaningful and will allow you to live your life with more joy and more cheerfulness. So your spouse who passed away from wherever their soul is wants and desires you to remarry. Because they're connected to you. Because they're not separated from you. This now is how, can we, how we can understand the deeper mystical esoteric dimension of this story. This is the first time in Chumash where somebody is buying a burial plot for a loved one who passed away. Many people died in the Bible till Abraham and Sarah, but this is the first time he's buying a burial plot. And not just for Sarah, for him to be buried near her. Why? Why is it so important? And why is the Torah telling this story and telling us about the negotiations? He could have said, Avram bought a piece of land and buried Sarah there. No, he's fighting for it and negotiating. They didn't want and he offers a lot of money. The Malbim writes a brilliant commentary. He explains that the Chittites did not believe in the concept of afterlife. And Avram is trying to teach them and the Torah is trying to teach us the concept of afterlife. You don't just send away a body, a body is dead, cremated, dispose it, who cares? No. You prepare for it a dignified burial plot because the soul continues to live and hovers in the place where the body is buried. And furthermore, we believe in Tchiyasamesim that one day the body will be resurrected and come back to life and therefore you have to give it a place, a dignified place. You plant it into the earth like a plant which ultimately is produced into a tree. And that's why burial is so important in Judaism. And this is what Avram is explaining to them. But there is something even deeper. Avram doesn't just buy a burial plot for Sarah, he buys a burial plot for him and Sarah, and for his future children. Because he's showing here the definition of marriage from a Jewish perspective. It's not just you meet a wife, you meet a girl, you meet a boy, you like each other, you get married, you don't like each other, you get divorced, and when somebody passes away, life moves on. Rather, the relationship is intrinsic, it's essential. When you marry your spouse, you're marrying your soulmate. You're marrying the second half of your soul. It's like a soul split in half. Like Adam and Eve were created as Siamese twins and then they were split. A husband and a wife, two souls were split and now the two halves come together. And therefore, even after the passing, there is a timeless relationship and therefore Avram wants to be buried together with his wife after they pass away. And we're in a cave which physically represents that the relationship exists on a cave level, on a subterranean level, on a subconscious level, below the ground. It's invisible. And because it's invisible, it also can't be destroyed. In other words, the relationship is not just the visible relationship, what you see. And when there's no powerful romance, when there's no passion, it's gone. The relationship is invisible. The relationship is beyond your conscious awareness and mind and psyche. And therefore, even if there's no passion, it's still present and potent and forceful because it exists on a cave level. And since it exists on a cave level, it's not dependent on the visible dimension of the relationship. In fact, there's an interesting Gemara in Baba Basra at length. I'm not going to get into it at the moment. Rabbi Benaz speaks about the... He visited the cave of the Machpelah and describes there 
the unique situation and love that was going on between Avram and Sarah. Where Avram is sitting on Sarah's lap and she's cleaning his hair from the lice. And obviously we have to understand this as a symbolic story, as a metaphoric story, but that's beyond the scope of, of tonight's discussion, but it brings out the eternal, timeless relationship between them. To make this even a little more geschmack, to give it a little more spice, I'm going to share an insight from the Vilna Gon. There's something unique about this portion and the story of the purchase of the cave of the Machpelah for a plot for Sarah. Open up source number three and I want you to look and continue looking at the verses. Six times, six times in the story, open up source number three in your curriculum below the video that we have the mentioning of burying the dead. Look, the Ekberas may say, I will bury my dead. Kvairis Meisacha, bury your dead. Mikvair Meisacha, nobody will stop you from burying your, your corpse. Likperis Meisi, to bury the, my dead, the one who died in my family. Kvair Meisacha, the Ekveras Meisi. One, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, six times. And then at the end, Ephraim tells Avram, Ves Meischa Kvair, bury the one who died in your family. Do you see the difference between the first six and the seventh? Look closely again. Hold your curriculum. Open up again. Source number three. See again. Each time, what comes first? The statement about burial, the statement about death. First burial, then death. I will bury the one who died. First bury, and then death. The seventh time, the last time. The one who died, bury. First death, then burial. Why? Could have said the seventh time too. Kvair is meischa. No, that's meischa kvair. Zog de Vilnagon, the six times of burial correspond to the six people who were buried in Maris HaMachpelah. Avram and Sarah, or actually Sarah and Avram. Sarah and Abraham is the first couple. Second couple is Rebecca and Yitzchak. Rivka and Yitzchak. So we have four. And the next couple is Leah and Yaakov. Leah and his, her husband Jacob, Yaakov. So we have Avram and Sarah, we have Yitzchak and Rivka, we have Yaakov and Leah, these are the six times. Why the seventh? The Gemara says in sight that Esau's head was buried in Maris HaMachpelah. The whole story how he tried to stop the Jewish tribes from burying their father Jacob in the cave. And Esau was beheaded and his head came into the Amaris HaMachpelah. He was also buried there. The Zoya says, Reshad Esau bit for the Yitzchak. The head of Esau went to the bosom of his father Yitzchak. And that's where the head of Esau is. Detachment from his head and his body. And therefore, the, the Gevilna Gon says, that's the seventh. Now what's the difference? The difference is, the Gemara says in Masech the Brachas, take a look at source number four, Zag the Gemara in Brachas, Daf Yudches, Tzadikim b'misosam nikru chayim rishayim b'chayim kriyam esim. Tzaddikim, righteous people, even after their death, are called live. Or being, they're called living. They're seen as being alive. Wicked people, even when they're alive, they're seen as being dead. So the Gon says, by the six Tzaddikim, it says first burial and then death. Because they're not considered dead before their burial. They're considered alive. 
They lived with their souls. They lived with that part of them that is eternally alive. They lived with eternity, with godliness, with truth. So there's no death before the burial. But in the seventh one, there's death before burial. And he adds, Gavaldi the Gemara says in Shabbos, Dav Kufnun Beis, Omid Beis, that Sadikim have a certain element of life even in the grave. The bodies don't rot. The bodies don't decompose in the grave. I, the Gemara asks, it says, Afar Atel, Afar Tosh, you're going to return to earth? And the Gemara says, that's only an hour before Tchiyas HaMesim. Right before the resurrection, they'll return to earth and then be resurrected. So he says, therefore, first is the burial and then is the death, an hour before Tchiyas HaMesim. What do we see from all of this? We see the eternity of the soul. And the eternity that's expressed in the very wording that the Torah uses to describe the burial plot. Because the relationship, the marriage is eternal. Ah! Now we understand. This is why every marriage is derived from this story. Because the Torah is conveying to us in a very subtle way this message. When you're entering into the covenant of marriage, you have to remember, you're not just bonding with another person's body. And you're not just entering into a relationship with somebody you like and you appreciate and you enjoy. You enjoy. You have to remember, there is a soulful intimacy and bond that's being created, and it's something timeless and eternal. A chuppah is not a union, as I said, it's a reunion, and this is the perspective you have to have in your relationship, because there are ups and there are downs. Life is a roller coaster, there is conflict and there is disagreement. There's no couple, very few couples who never disagree. Maybe you're one of them, but most couples disagree. Not every day, hopefully, but there's disagreements, there's fights, there's problems, there's challenges. You have to remember the essential, intrinsic, underground, cave-like relationship. And this explains beautifully why the story of Yitzchak and Rivka's relationship. Their marriage follows the story. Yitzchak and Rivka were very opposite personalities. And they disagreed about very serious issues which had a lot of historical implications. A note, a point in, in factors. Yitzchak loved Esav. Rivka loved Yaakov. And nonetheless, all of their disagreements and everything that transpired between them never caused them to separate. There was always a love between them. How? Because they always remembered Kicha Kichim is the Ephraim, the story of the Maris Machpelah, that their relationship is essential, it's intrinsic, it's innate. And interestingly, in the story of Yitzchak marrying Rivka, it says Vayikaches Rivka, Kicha Kicha, Kicha Kichim is the Ephraim, Vayikaches Rivka. Now, each one of these four interpretations, Pshat, Remes, Drusat, still leaves us with a difficulty. And the difficulty is the same in all of them. The idea is nice, but what we're missing is the soul. Take the literal interpretation. Kicha kichem is dayefren, just as this purchase was timeless, when you get married... The conviction, the ideal has to be, this is eternal, this is timeless. There's no if, maybe, 
It's not like you're moving into a house. You don't like the house, you move. You buy a suit, you buy a, a, a dress, you, buy a, you don't like it, you move. That's how some people think marriage is. No, it's eternal. But how? How do you cultivate that feeling? How do you inculcate that ideal in your children? Next level, drush. The interconnected level. That what? Just as Avram and Ephraim, each one of them thought, they got the better part of the deal. They got the bargain. The other one made a bad mistake. That's the attitude in marriage as well. But how? How can a husband and wife really live that way? To wake up in the morning, to come home in the evening, to look at your spouse and say, you know, how lucky I am. How fortunate I am. God, I can't thank you enough for this person. Why do I deserve it? It's a little different than the joke about the Jewish couple celebrating their 50th anniversary and during the feast she stands up and says, I want to make a lechayim to myself for sticking it out with this guy for 50 years. And a lechayim to him for sticking it out with me for 50 years. And I want to tell you that the 50 years of our marriage passed like two days. And one nudnik in the crowd asks her, why do you say like two days? Why don't you say the marriage went by like one day? And she says, because our marriage for 50 years has been like two days. Tisha and Yom Kippur. The two toughest days in the Jewish calendar. How do you really develop this attitude? How do you develop an attitude that's so contrary to what's so frequently encountered in our contemporary age at least? Next, the symbolic homiletical interpretation about Jewish resilience. They looked at the burial plots and they said this means we have to start life again. How do you do that? Where did they get that power? When's that strength and perspective? And finally, the fourth level of interpretation, the esoteric, mystical dimension. How do you really reach that awareness and recognition that your relationship with your spouse is on a cave level, not only on a conscious level? And even when you have not the feeling, the passion, which feelings fade and feelings fluctuate constantly no feelings are constant you're not a computer you're not a robot how do you develop that awareness so critical to have a really beautiful and powerful and extraordinary marriage so here we finally come to a fifth level of interpretation in Torah this Pshat Remez Drush Sarad is a fifth level and this is the dimension introduced through the teachings of Hasidus we discussed this at length also in our class last year, Parshas Vayikra. Please pass the salt about having salt on every offering, the five levels. The fifth level is known as the essence, the quintessence, the yichid. And the fifth interpretation was conveyed to us via a story, a beautiful story. It was recorded by a chassid of the Middle Rebbe, whose name was Rabbi Yaakov Kadaner. He wrote a book called Sipurim Neiroim. And he tells there a story which he heard from the person who was present, Repinchas Reizus. So it's as reliable as a story can get. And the story goes as following. It goes as follows. The Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, the author of the Tanya and the Shulchan Aruch, once was traveling with his Hasidim and they stopped at an inn. And in the inn, the Alter Rebbe shared with his followers an intense, deep Hasidic discourse. 
The owner of the inn, who was not fluent and was non-educated in the terminology frequently employed in the Kabbalistic and Hasidic mystical literature, felt terrible. And Al-Tarebbe saw how bad he felt. So he asked him, he said, what are you so upset about? And he said, I feel horrible. I didn't understand a single word you presented in the Maimur and the Hasidic discourse. So the Alter Rebbe asked him, he said, Mishnayis, you learn? Yes. Gemara, you learn? Yes. He was a Jew who learned Torah. Did you learn Seder Noshim? Did you learn the section of Mishnayis dealing with relationships between men and women? Yes. Tractate Kiddushin, you learned? Yes. The first Mishnah, Ha'ishin Niknas B'Sholosh Drachim B'Kesav B'Shtar B'Biyah. In source number one that we had, a woman you can marry through money? Yes. And the Gemara, what does the Gemara ask? Back to source number one, take a look. What does the Gemara ask? Kesef minalon. How do you know money? Kicha kichem is dayafrin. So the Alter Rebbe said, here in this line in Gemara, you have encapsulated the entire mimer, the entire discourse I shared with my Hasidim. I explained to them source number one. Open up your curriculum. Ma'isha niknis b'shalash drachem. The Jewish people are compared to God's wife. We are his spouse. How do you enter into a marriage with your husband, with your groom? How do we develop a relationship with God? Three methods. Kesef, shtar, and beer. Kesef, which means yearning, craving. Nichsef, nichsafti. I crave, I yearn. Kesef, from the word kisufen, is av, through love, through passion. Star, a contract, a document is through Torah. Through the study and internalization of Torah, you become one with God. And be is through intimacy, becoming one flesh, which will occur when Mashiach comes. So the Gemara asks, Star, no, we learn Torah, but Kasef Minolon, where do you get love for God? Where do you develop an emotion for spirituality? Where can you develop a passion for davening? A passion for a mitzvah, a feeling towards the Rebbeinu Shalom. Kesef minalon, where? Where do you get it from? We are physical, corporal, egocentric, mundane, earthly human beings. Where do you develop a feeling for something transcendent? And the answer is kicha, kicha mizdei efrin. The way you can find kesef, the way you can find a love is mizdei efrin. Sada is a field, Ephraim comes from the word earth. Every person has a deep, godly essence, a divine soul, but it's covered up. It's eclipsed with our animal, egotistical, and biological consciousness. Zagda al you have to plow your animal soul like a field. And you have to reduce it to dust, to plain land, to earth in order to be able to expose, to access your inner soul. Kicha, kicha mizdei If you want to find the kesef, if you want to find the love, if your animal soul is erect, it's standing erect and tall like a big mansion, like a big building, it will eclipse your soul. You have to reduce it and plow it like a soda, like the offer, like the earth in the field. And you plow it through, you work it through, and then you will find within the, the divine consciousness, the Kesef. 
This is what Alter Rebbe told this person in the inn. This obviously applies also to our relationships in our own families, our own marriages. Kicha, kicha, mizdei efer. If a person does not challenge their animal consciousness, their ego, their sense of arrogance, of pompousness, of self-consciousness, of self-centeredness, a person could never have the marriage, a good marriage, because egos don't connect to other egos. Egos look out for themselves. Kicha, kicha, mizdei efrin. The person has to be able to become humble, like a field, like offer, humble their animal soul, and then they could penetrate and see the depth of their godliness through which you can also connect to another person. So as long as I don't have this day Ephraim, as long as I do not become a field and a field of earth, as long as I do not become humble, and as long as I don't plow through my animal soul, and reduce it to earth, ka'afar, then I could never reveal the kesef. The key, the key to a powerful marriage is therefore bittel. Bittel means you don't take your ego seriously. Bittel is humility. It's an amount of self, certain sense of self-nullification. Bittal means you realize that there's something deeper in you than your self-conscious ego. There's a godliness in you. There's a spirituality in you. And when you connect to that level of yourself, which is selfless, which is connected to God, then you could really connect with another person genuinely in the deepest level. Because self-consciousness and arrogance is what separates us from each other. You want you need stayef. The fifth level, the Hasidic dimension, like the essence, imbues vitality on all the other four levels. Imbues meaning and gives depth to all the first four levels of interpretations. Because nefesh, ruach, neshama, chaya correspond to pshat, remez, drushsoid. There are four layers of human consciousness. The biological corresponds to the concrete interpretation of Torah. The second level is the emotional, corresponds to the symbolic level, the cognitive to the interconnected level, and the transcendental, the spiritual, Chaya, represents the Kabbalah, this esoteric, the Soid. And then you have Yechidah, the essence of the soul, which is not defined by any particular quality. It's the core of every level of human existence. It's the undefined oneness with God at the core of human existence, which can't be defined in words. And that's expressed through the teachings of Hasidus, the teachings of the Baal Shem Tev and the students. And when the essence comes out, all the four levels are enhanced and enriched. And therefore the fifth level gives new meaning and depth into the four pre-existing levels and now go back. Pshat. What is the pshat when you get married? It's for eternity. How do you have that ideal? Only if there's bittal. If there's a sense of deep humility. If you get beyond your animal consciousness and you get into your essence, into your soul with humbleness, then you surrender, you dedicate yourself to the institution of marriage with eternity the second level how do you always feel that you got the better part of the deal 
also only through Bittal. Stay Ephraim. If your animal consciousness, if your ego was bloated, you'll never feel that way. And you could never even celebrate your vulnerability. But if you have stay Ephraim, if you're like a field, if you're like earth, then you can really appreciate another person because there are tremendous qualities in your spouse. But for you to appreciate it, you have to be humble. The third level, the resilience of the Jewish people was because they never thought about themselves only. When you think about yourself, it's easy to get depressed, to get into a bad mood, to get into despair, to become a victim, to feel bad for yourself. But they focused on what's their mission in the world. What's their objective? Their objective is And finally, when you're like Zdei Ephraim, then you could feel the relationship on a soul level, not only on a bodily level. When you excavate your animal soul, when you become a Zdei Ephraim, when you plow through the earth of your animal consciousness, your beastly consciousness, you challenge it, you fight it, you confront it, you subdue it, then you can get to your soulful level and then you can appreciate and recognize the fourth interpretation, the cave-like relationship between a husband and a wife, which just like the relationship between Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca, was timeless and eternal. Have a wonderful evening. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.